Welcome to Tracks, presented by Brian's Final Records. I'm Brian. I'm Jay. And today we're talking about Motley Crue's self-titled album as part of our three-part series on the death, resurrection, and reformation of Motley Crue. Motley Crue, the album, was released in March of 1994, almost a full year after Vince Neil's first solo album. It was released by Elektra Records, and it was the first Motley album since Decade of Decadence in 1991, and the first studio album since Dr. Feelgood. It was also the first album released under the recently signed $25 million contract that Elektra had just inked with Motley Crue right before Vince left the band. This album also introduced the world to a new voice of Motley Crue, at least for now, John Karabi, who had previously been in a band called The Scream. Jay, to say this was a departure from what we are used to from Motley Crue would be a huge understatement. But he wasn't. Um, I, you know, I try to put myself back in 1994 mindset where I was musically. This was in my heyday of the 90s country boom, so... Garth Brooks, Clint Black, Alan Jackson, those were my rotations. And then my girl singers, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, you know, all that stuff. And I was writing a lot of songs and all that, but I had kind of gotten out of my rock and roll phase because we talked about on previous tracks, I just avoided the alternative grunge thing as long as I possibly could, really until I joined the Holly Carbines in 1996 is when I got into that. And I got into like the Counting Crows side of it. Uh, but so I, I was just not doing anything rock. But the big rock station that we had a translator for in Florence, Alabama, where I grew up, was out of Nashville. It was WKDF blow torch of a station just awesome station and they switched formats to alternative and so i was like eh, but I, I flipped through kdf one day and i heard this killer song and then the dj came on and said that's the new one from motley crew without vince neal and i was like what and the song mm-hmm. was misunderstood we'll talk about it more there but i went and bought this album because i couldn't find the single the tape single or the CD single. So I, I own the cassette tape to this somewhere in my lexicon, but I listen to it on Apple music for this. Yeah. I actually own the CD single of misunderstood as well. It was uh, the first thing that I had bought in from this album and it has the song hypnotized as the B side, which is a great track. So I love yeah. that. And uh, I, so my, my mindset at this time was that I was in a quote unquote band at the time where we played out of my parents barn right at, at the farm i lived on and uh, we played a lot of metal music we were all metal heads and you know i we had just brought in this guy james who is a great friend of mine and he was brought in to play guitar and sing so we had three guitar players a bass player a drummer and then he would sing the songs just an awesome dude and he had his his musical tastes were similar to mine we both loved skid row he loved Tesla. He loved Extreme, right? And we all both loved Motley Crue. So we were sitting around one day, and then they play the first single, which was Hooligans Holiday, on the radio station we were listening to. Because we were in the same boat, right? This was the last year that we had heavy metal music, and it switched formats later on to my favorite R.E.M. song, End of the World as We Know It, for 72 <laughs> flipping hours straight. Uh-huh. And uh, But before that, we got to hear this song, and we were both just like blown away, like, wow, what is that, right? Holy crap. And this was probably a couple months before the actual album came out, was when they released that single. So they came to town, and my buddy and I said, well, let's go see them. Why not, right? So they came to town in August, 
and we got tickets and we went there and it was just a, a game changer concert for us because the opening act for that show was typo negative on their bloody kisses album right which was their huge album that took them off and we sat there we were in the front row right up against the guardrail watching this typo negative band and they just blew our minds right so we're like well how is motley Crue going to follow that and then Karabi and and crew comes out and they just they just kick the shit out of the building. It was amazing. Like they were full of energy, they were just rocking through it. And Karabi was singing everything great. And so you know we bought the album, and it's one of those things. Like my friends didn't want to hear it. That wasn't Motley Crue, right? I didn't want to hear it. But myself and James were just like, this is the greatest thing. So he went out and bought the the Send Away album. So they had an EP that they also created called Quaternary, and you could fill out a card that came in the album, ship it off to Motley Crue with a $10 check or whatever it was, and then however many months later, you got the CD, Quaternary. And huh. it had a song from each of the band members that they did by themselves, right? They wrote it and, and did all the stuff by themselves. And then a song called Baby Kills, which was the whole band together. And wow. it was just really cool. So we were hard into this when it first came out. And then, of course... As you, yeah, as we mentioned last time, I was fighting grunge and grunge and, and alternative rock as far as I could until there was no rock stations anymore in the area. I had to listen to that or top forty or country music, and I wasn't quite to country music yet. That would come a couple <laughs> years later, but that's where we stood. So that was my introduction to this album was hearing that Hooligans Holiday single, going and seeing them perform live, and just being hooked from there on. Man, I, I had so gotten out of the loop of what was going on with the band. I knew Vince had left, because we talked about last time, and I knew Exposed had come out. But I didn't know who John Karabi was. I didn't know anything about this. And again, the DJ said, this is Motley Crue with a new singer, John Karabi. And I was like, what? So I remember rolling into the record store. It was this place called Record Bar. It was a local place in the mall. And I remember asking the dude, where's the new Motley Crue record? And he said, oh, you know, that's not Vince Neil, right? I said, yeah, right. I said, I, I like that misunderstood song. I'll, and he said, well, okay. And he said, well, why don't you just buy the single? You know, he, he knew me. And he was like, are you sure you're going to go for this? And so I was like, okay. So, but they didn't have the single anywhere. And I think they had the CD single. But at the time, I didn't have a CD player. I just had a tape deck. So I was like, no, I'll just buy the whole thing. You know, it's, it's $8.99. I was like, whatever. You know, back then, I didn't care. And... um I bought it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The one you're holding up right there. I don't know that I had the green one. I think I had the red one. I can't remember. I had to go dig it up. But anyway, I remember putting that in my tape deck, Brian, in my, my little car and just cranking the absolute heck out of it and going, wow, this is not what I expected from a Motley Crue record. And I didn't know who Allison Chains really was at the time, but I realize now that and Soundgarden had a lot of influence. And Nikki Six has copped to as much of this over the sound of this record. And Bob Rock talked about it too, that he he really wanted these guys to go in a different direction. And Karabi clearly brought that to him. And I've always been of the mind, and it's one of the things I appreciate about this band is that I don't have to choose between Vince Neil and John Karabi. And, you know, they are totally different singers and styles. And to Vince's credit, he's never once said a harsh thing about it. He always says he's never seen, heard this record. I think that's bull. But <laughs> I, he's never said anything harsh about it. And Karabi's never said anything bad about him. It was a gig. He got it. He moved on. And I was okay with this idea because 
I had successfully made the transition from Van Halen to Van Hagar and Secret Crush. I love Van Hagar songs. Uh, I love I love Sammy's voice. I think it was perfect for that band. You know, yada yada. Um, and so I was okay with this. I was like, man, you know, I mean, it, this this can work. Um, but I've always wondered in my head. I was like, mm, should they have called this Motley Crew? Because it's a really interesting record. It's not what Motley Crue does. And, you know, someday we'll get around to doing Poison Native Tongue, and that's a very different record for those guys, but it's also very much a Poison record. Like, yeah. There's a lot of Poison on that record because Brett Michaels has such an influence on that band. This is a band going in a very different direction. And I think what's funny is behind-the-scenes stuff is they were trying to write a follow-up to Dr. Feelgood, and it sucked, and they couldn't. They couldn't get it. Vince wasn't interested for various reasons. But even Tommy Lee uh, would say, "Like this is boring." Nick said it was boring. Nick Nikki didn't think it was any good. Like they were trying to do songs that were Doctor Feelgood Part Two, and it just wasn't happening. Yeah, it, 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 that's a very good thing to bring up too, because you got to remember these guys were freshly sober, right? So Nikki had never written an album sober before yeah. he had written parts of dr feelgood sober as we know right he wrote primal scream and angela sober but before that building an album he never really wrote it sober and his whole life was drugs right drugs sex money whatever that was everything they did and that was everything that motley crew was up to this point so you know they had a hard time doing that vince like we said in the last episode just didn't seem real interested in being part of the band and at one point, he just up and left, right? They got into a verbal spat and he left. And now he thinks he was fired. They say he quit, whatever. He was gone, right? He was gone. And now they have to focus their energy on finding someone else. They're, they're pissed, by the way. If you've seen any of the interviews they did after Vince left or any of that, they are mocking him to the teeth. They are just pissed at him. They, they, they do not care that he's gone. And yeah. so let's talk about John Crabby. So John Crabby comes from LA, which they all are from, right? That's an inn right there as we know it. And he was in a band called the scream. The scream was a typical hard rock band and they released an album called let it scream, which is a fantastic album. If you ever, if you're, if you like John Crabby, go check out, let it scream by the scream. It's an absolutely fantastic album. Just check out whatever he does. It's really good. He's dead. Daisy stuff is phenomenal too, but either way, they put this album out, and he's sitting there, and someone draws his attention to an article in Spin Magazine in which Nikki Six is just complimenting the Let It Scream album and the singer from the band The Scream. And so he's like, oh, that's really cool, man. So he thought, well, what the heck? I'm going to call up his publicist, and I'm going to thank him. So he, he called Nikki Six's publicist and left him a thank you for the saying the kind words in Spin Magazine because... Nikki Six is a big name. John Karabi's in a band nobody knows. That's a big deal. So here he is, and uh, he leaves this message. A couple days later, a phone rings, and he's getting ready now to head out on tour with The Scream. Phone rings. His wife answers. His wife says, before you leave, you need to take this call. He says, no, I'll, I'll call later. He goes, I, I'll call him back. I got to get going. I got to get to the airport. He says, N she says, no, I really think you need to take this call. So he's like, fine. He gets on the phone and it's Nikki Six, and he says, yeah. Uh, Nikki Six, is like, hey man, it's Nikki Six. He's like, whatever, and he hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> and so then the phone rings again, and he's like, no man, it's really Nikki Six. He's like, 
oh shit i'm so sorry you know and so they start talking about how you know hey vince is no longer in the band uh you can't let that out to anyone you can't let anyone know vince is no longer in the band and we we're wondering if you wanted to come down and play with us jam a little bit see if you might be interested in taking the singing role and he's just like holy shit you know and so he had a conundrum of do i go and do this and cancel the screams tour or delay it anyway or do i just go on tour and let this pass so he decides to show up he shows up and they jam for a while and they have a really good time and they call him later and say no you know we had one other guy that we auditioned we want you to have the job would you like to be the new singer of motley crew his whole life changed right that was it for him. He, this this album, whether you love it or hate it, changed his life and made him a, val, uh, a valuable member of the singing uh, group or songwriters and everything else at, from that day forward. So his whole life changed from here. People know the name John Karabi now because of this album, Love It or Hate It, like I said. So it was a real interesting time. So I think that's kind of a cool little story of how that came together. That is neat. And that's the thing about this is... You know, usually when you have these dalliances, when these guys bring in different people or whatever, it never ends well, right? There's always this nasty breakup, and then years later, like, eh, that guy sucks. What were you thinking? No one has ever said anything ill about each other <laughs> from this time, other than John Karabi in, in the Dirt book, who may be the honest, only honest, totally honest person in that book, who's saying, guys, just make up your freaking minds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you, you want to do? And I, I feel for him because these guys clearly wanted to continue with Vince. Vince had no interest in it. Whether how that, However well, that went down one way or the other, they, they were not going to work together for a little while. But it didn't take them too long to get back together where they realized, like, yeah, maybe we're better together than we are apart. And I think these guys always missed a little bit of that. Even as much as they, they talk about how much they enjoy this stuff, um, you know, they jumped right back in the water quick with them. I will tell you that you're completely wrong okay. in saying that. <laughs> They were happy Vince was gone. They never wanted to get back with Vince, ever. Wow. They never did. They were forced to. And we'll get into that when we talk about the next album, Generation Swine, because there's a long story there and all the things leading up to it. And we'll, we'll talk about Karabi's exit and everything else and what I'm, brought that on. I'm curious to hear that because Generation Swine was a total blind buy by me. And I'll tease that for next time. <laughs> I think it was uh, for most people. But anyway, yeah. yeah, we'll talk about a lot of that when that happens. But right now we got to focus on John Karabi is now in the band. Vince Neil is out and we're going to put an album together. And... You know, they decide to bring back Bob Rock, who had worked on Dr. Feelgood with them and also worked on the songs from Decade of Decadence with them as well. And they've got a really good working relationship with Bob Rock. So they say, hey, we would like you to come in here. We, they, they tell Bob Rock, we got a new singer. You know, come on down and check us out. So Bob Rock comes down. He listens for a while and thinks, this is really good. This, this is going to work. And so they start working on new songs. In a 10-month period, they had written twenty, written and recorded 24 songs for this album. And the really interesting part when you when you read or, or hear them talk about it is that normally what happens is Nikki Six goes and writes an album and comes in with an album already made, plays it for them, teaches them their parts, and they decide which songs to use and what not to. In this case, they literally sat there in a rehearsal studio, rehearsal space, and wrote live. They all wrote together live. It was the first time and probably the only time that he has ever done that. And he loved that freedom 
to just sit there and not have to come up with everything. John would come in with riffs and they would work them out. They'd write lyrics together. It, he loved that portion. Yeah, I want to say that's the one thing that, that I think I always remember most about this era is that Motley Crue got a legitimate second guitar player. And Bob Rocks talked about that. And Mick Mars has talked about it too. Having another guy who literally could hold the rhythm down, he could just explore. And he does on this record. He has so much stuff that's, I mean, Mick had already kind of broadened out anyway on Dr. Feelgood because Bob Rock beat it out of him, as he likes to say. Right. But on this record, Karabi was so good as a guitar player that he's like, man, I don't have to, I don't have to hold the rhythm. John's got it. I can sit over here and do this. Other stuff. And it really changes the way the dynamic works in the band. Cause it was one guitar player. I know Vince held a guitar on same old situation, whatever he didn't play. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that, that is, is a one guitar band, you know? Yes. And, and now it's a two guitar band and that changes that you, you and I have both been in bands that changes the dynamic of things when you've got another player that can really handle the rhythm and then you can just do stuff on the side. I mean, it, it changes the dynamic. And then you've got a player like Karabi, who's very much a bluesy soulful guy. And he's bringing that in along with all these other influences and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's going to be different. Yeah. And I, I remember, I remember the Sonic, template that this record is being so different but it's exactly what i thought motley Crue would sound like if they really had two guitar players absolutely and you, you mentioned it mick mars loved this whole thing because he didn't have to sit there and hold the hold everything down he was able to play more leads add new parts you know layer in some cool parts that sounded good over another guitar and it gave him a ton of freedom and really burst his creativity in a sense right he he became a lot more creative on this as well and you'll see that in the credits on, on some of the songs is that it's not just john karabi and nikki six writing everything you got songs that were written by all four members of the band even bob rock gets a writing credit on this and it's just interesting so really 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 like that yeah so that added another huge dynamic to this band as it was before you just didn't have it with Vince Neil. Now you have it here. Now Vince has got the voice of Motley Crue, and that's the biggest thing that they had to overcome here was not just to write really good songs, but now to introduce this new voice that is completely different from Vince Neil. I mean, he's he's got that gritty, deep, bluesy voice with some gnarl to it, right? And he's not that high-pitched vocal that you're used to with Motley Crue, and I think that's an interesting dynamic with this album as well. Oh, it totally, totally changes things. I mean, it is introducing a soulful singer into a band that was much more in the high-pitched metal end of things. I mean, it just it just changes the band. And it's not to say good or bad. And you, you've been good enough to send me some good YouTube clips of when they were on tour and Karabi doing some of the older crew stuff, like Wild Side and Dr. Feelgood. And it's, I mean, it's a different song. I mean, it's yeah. a completely different sounding song. It's cool, but it's not what I expected. Um, no more than if Vince Neil jumped out and tried to sing Hooligan's Holiday, which, by the way, chuckle at that for a sec what that would sound like. It's just not the same. And, and, you know, Vince has his 
thing that he does and he did that you know very well for this band for a number of years and even solo wise he he i mean we talked about it on that exposed review brian that it sounded like vince neal i mean he didn't Mm -hmm. do anything you didn't expect correct on there this guy on the other hand is bringing a different element in and so i kind of titled my notes to this like motley karabi you know that's just sort of what i refer to this this record as and i I think we should get into it man because there's a lot of tracks to go through here Let's start this off here. Motley Crue 1994 kicks off with a song called Power to the Music. This is a song that was written against at the time at the time this was going down that they were writing this we had the pmrc correct and all those stickers got slapped on there in the in the mid to late 80s and now we're moving in they were trying to pass some legislation that would make it against the law for you under 18 to own any album with that sticker on it yeah and that would that you would get arrested and fined with community service if you if they found it in your collection Luckily, that did not happen, right? Because that would have been just absolutely stupid and asinine. Yes. But they tried, and so this this song was written as a kind of a middle finger in the air to those people trying to pass this law. It's a very strong, powerful start to this album and really sets the tone for what you're going to get on this album as not your typical Motley Crue right here. And it's a kick in the face to start things off. It's two things about this that I think set the tone for the record. Is It's a lot longer song than what we're used to from Motley Crue. They're the kings of the three-minute, 30-second pop edit at mm-hmm. this point. And they kind of always have been. I mean, you go back to Theater of Pain and, you know, Girls, 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 and Dr. Feelgood are just loaded with those kind of songs. This is going to be, no, we're going to spend our time. We're going to talk about what we want to talk about. And I think the thing that really gets me here. I mean, we've talked about Karabi's different edge with his vocals and, and it really stands out here. This is a slamming deep riff. You can tell there's two guitar players in this band now and Mick is able to just go off on these wah jams of, you know, ethereal planes while Karabi's holding it down. And the other thing is Tommy Lee is drumming his ass off on this record. And I've always thought he was one of rock's greatest drummers doing way more complicated stuff back there than the song deserves. And on this record, it is in full force. And this this track in particular, it's a great way to start a record. I mean, I I remember hearing this going when I put that tape in. I can I can remember it distinctly going, "Holy shit!" Yeah. <laughs> Motley Crue got heavy. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always thought they were kind of heavy anyway, but they got really heavy. Yes, and I th- I'm glad you said that because that is the the whole thing on this album. This is a heavy album. They spared no expense on this they went into that chainsy sound gardeny heavy riffage mm-hmm. area and they went full force into this this is not going to be your wild side you're not you're going to be your uh girls uh, girls girls yeah, snake shake sticky yep. sweet i mean it's not only heavy in tone brian it's heavy in subject matter too oh yeah oh yeah and we'll talk about that this next song so the second song on here is called uncle jack now note on this one this sounds actually a real life story about john crabby's uncle who was a child mm-hmm. molester who was con- a convicted yeah. child molester and this was his big middle finger to his uncle for doing what he did and yeah. so i mean this just shows the different depths that they're willing to go in lyric wise that they've never really been into before love the guitars in this one that really cool riff that you know it's just a really cool riff with a very strong subject matter 
Oh, yeah, I mean, grunge was full of dark, dark stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we can go all over the place with that Pearl Jam's Jeremy and, you know, pretty much anything Kurt Cobain wrote for Nirvana was some deep, dark stuff when he wasn't just being a jerk. And Crabby's influence on that is there. The other thing is, like, Crew, Crew is really leaning into what I think could pass as a really good facelift track on Alice in Chains' face yeah. record. I mean, it feels like it. It sounds like it. I found it funny and I didn't know this until recently you sent me a doc where they're talking to Bob Rock and he's just talking about all the people he's worked with through the years and he talks about how he taught Motley Crue how to tune a whole step down and how he taught Metallica, no, Metallica how, to t- yeah. how to tune a whole step down I'm like these guys are morons they never figured that out <laughs> before before Dr. Feelgood and this but but it, it changes your sonic template because as a, as a guy who played in a band and our record is tuned a whole step down so that our singer could sing above it that was we were doing all country but the old 97s do that a lot of other ones Steve Earle do that but we did that for that reason but when you play metal it really gives it this you know it's just that deep thump and it matches the tone of things because not I didn't know the story behind that song and I read it before doing this review this time and then listening to it again I'm like oh wow Molly Crew actually had something to say about something other than shoot me up and go down yeah, like exactly. That, I mean, and I'm like, wow, this is mind blowing. And I don't know that I appreciated it at the time, but man, that's two really strong tracks leading off the record. And yep. both of them are superb. Agreed. And then we get into the first single that was released on this album called Hooligans Holiday. And uh, if you've read or listened to or whatever, Nikki Six's Heroin Diaries, the, yeah. the opening lyric to this is something he wrote while he was high back in that day, back in the girls, girls, girls day, right? Mm-hmm. This is something he's had in his diary for a long time or in his music lyric list for a long time. It's just not something that Vince Neil would do. And now he's able to bring it out and really flesh that idea out and build a song here. I remember the first time I heard this on the radio, I was blown away by the song. I just really liked it. And then when they told me it was Molly Crew, I was blown away even more. I was like, holy shit. And then I saw the video and I was like, wow, they look so different, right? Which they really mm-hmm. didn't. It was just the new singer had dark hair like that. <laughs> yeah. But it was just, wow. You know, I this is one of my favorites on the record. I think it's an absolutely fantastic sound. It was the perfect pick, I think to be the introduction to the new Motley Crue because it's got that real good heaviness to it, yet it still get that Mick Mars riff in there that sounds like Motley Crue, right? Even though you have yeah. a different singer. It's the it's the party music of Girls, 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 which is really kind of the best sounding crew record next to Feel Good in a lot of ways, like in terms of just what they're able to play. Mixed with the new grunge influence and the, and the element of having another guitar player. You know, and, and pulling those things together. So it's Motley Crue. It's this version of Motley Crue having a good time, if you will. Yeah. And, I, you know, we talked about on Vince's record, Exposed, that there were like biker bar songs. And I'm like, it's like the fake biker bar song. <laughs> this is the real <laughs> biker bar song. <laughs> because you could see this being played in one of those kind of places where you get your head torn off, you know, by a bottle or something like in Roadhouse. You know, I didn't know this was the first single. I'd miss this one because, like I said, Misunderstood was the first thing I heard. And we'll get to that in a sec. But hearing it in reverse and then seeing the video again and i was like man these guys look really different but boy they are a different band now and i i gotta say man it's three for three so far for me i love it i love hooligans holiday it's a it's a fun song the thing i love about it brian is it's not built to be a radio single it's it's five minutes long and they don't care like they're just gonna play their song and it's gonna last as long as it needs to last and there's a radio edit that exists i'm sure but 
the the album edit is the song to listen to. I mean, because you get the full Sonic experience. Yeah, I mean, they have a breakdown in there. I think, if I'm not mistaken, gets taken out yeah. of the uh, radio edit, and so that's how they kind of bring it back down but, to under. But can four I tell you how cool that is to see a band like Motley Crue do that because they didn't do that stuff like ever. Mm-hmm. One, yeah, they were yeah. too messed up to really do any of that and get it down on a record. But they, they can never pull something like that off, you know, and now they are. And so it's mm-hmm. it's kind of neat to hear like, wow, this is what they really could sound like if they really leaned into something. Yeah, I agree. It's just one of my favorite tracks. I, I just really, really love this song. It's not my favorite on the album, but it's pretty high up there, I would say. Up next is the second single. Jay, you thought five minutes and 51 seconds for Hooligans Holiday was long for a single. How about six minutes and 53 seconds for Misunderstood as a single? Again, a really good song. Just This is a slower version song, but still dark and still heavy and just really good. I mean, it's such a well-constructed track. Like The thing I'm loving here, and we'll hear it on the next song too, is Mick is doing a lot of these open-tuned acoustic things. He's playing an open G, and he's just running the chords up and down the, the neck because John can play all the other straight stuff, right? And it's it's so well-constructed, every piece of it. Even like Nikki's bass playing, and Bob Rock talks about this, that like Nikki Six had learned how to actually play bass sometime between Dr. Feelgood and you know doing all this. And he was playing stuff that, like, I'm like, is that Nicky really playing bass? Because his bass lines are not complicated. They are on this record, though. And, man, the thing I love about Misunderstood is it's such a tone setter for this entire album. I mean, it's we're going to go into some dark places because we've seen some dark things. The world is kind of dark. We're all a little cynical right now. And it's okay. And I, I've always felt like this deserved so much more recognition than it got. Because, again, I was out on the rock scene. And I heard this song. And this is the one rock album I know I bought in like a four-year span. And it was because of this song. Because I, I jammed this endlessly. And people couldn't believe it was Motley Crue when I played it for them. I'm like, have you ever heard the crew without you know Vince Neil? And I'd play this, and they're like, what is this? I'm like, right, see? It's, a, <laughs> it's just a cool tune. And the thing I love about it is the way Karabi's vocals go on it and the way the song goes, too. It's this contemplative, soulful thing, and then it's this jamming tune, and he's just ripping through it with that deep, soulful growl. Man, I, I love this tune. I can't put it over enough. I mean, I, Misunderstood is my favorite song on the record, and I for good reason. Yeah, this is one of the uh, the songs, the first songs that they wrote as a band together by just jamming, right? I yeah. believe that Karabi came in with that acoustic riff that starts the song off. And they started writing songs about people dealing with the fact that their life is almost over. And they, right. they didn't do everything they thought they should have done in their life. So it passed them by. And it's just a really great song. And I, I love, too, that breakdown in the middle where it just gets heavy. Doom, do, 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 do. You know, and it's not what you expect. You expect expect the ripping solo, and you get that, but it's so much deeper. And what I think is neat is they're writing a song about people who feel like life has passed them by. And this is a band also kind of contemplating that idea. Yeah, like, is it over for us? And this is just what we got because at this point, like the 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 news was out. So you know, when they put this out, they knew like this one, and and this begins Nikki Six's long war with MTV. He still holds to this day, I imagine. Um, But I mean, really, like he was pissed, (laughs) you know. And and Karabi helped him channel that into something that was useful. And I mean, again, though, I I can't put over enough like the work Tommy Lee is doing back there on the drums 
And knowing kind of where he was mentally at the time, he was not in a good place. And Tommy is clearly just channeling that through those through those drums and I mean, it's, it's some of his best playing ever. Yeah, you got to remember at this time, I think that he and Heather Locklear were on the outs, if yep. not fully out at this point. And in a couple of years, he'll meet Pamela Anderson, but it hasn't happened yet. So he's got a lot of aggression in him and a lot to put out. And he really does. I think the one thing you could say about this album was it reinvigorated all the players. They oh, yeah. came in with just gusto and ready to go and, and tear it apart. And Tommy Lee in this album really does some of his best drumming ever. It is amazing on here. And give credit to Bob too, Bob Rock for allowing that sonic landscape to happen and let these guys broaden where they were. And even the heel saying is like, I didn't know how this was going to go. I really liked Vince. You know, I thought that worked, but this sounded really interesting and these guys were going for it. So yeah, we can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Up next is probably one of my favorite tracks on this album. This is probably, I would say this is my second favorite track on this album. This is Love Shine. I absolutely am in love with the acoustic guitars on this album oh, and yeah. the way they sound and that riff. It's just gorgeous. And it's not the strongest lyrically song that they did on this album. However, it's just it's just beautiful. And I absolutely love this song. When it comes on, I crank it. And this is the shortest song on the album, too, at 2 minutes and 36 seconds. So if there was ever one that was going to be radio-friendly, this is the one. But they never did put it out, and I think that's because Electra stopped supporting them, but even so. You know what I say about the the, the rich sounds of the acoustic guitars on this? I, I made, I made a, a food analogy on the last track, so I'll just try to carry it forward here. If, if Vince Neil had a, a boring uh, Applebee's margarita song, this is the Chili's molten chocolate cake song when it's <laughs> done just right. You get the right amount of ice cream, the right amount of fudge, the whole bit, and it's just this thick tapestry of acoustic wonderment. And it's not something you would have expected from Motley Crue. They had acoustic guitars laced in and out of songs, but it wasn't a feature of what they did before, not even on the Feel Good record. And Love Shine gives them such a, I don't know, it's, it's such a different thing. Again, it could be an Alice in Chains song. It could be a Soundgarden song, especially with the way Karabi's singing it, because him and Cornell are in the same vocal place. Mm. Um, I even wrote it could be a Native Tongue song, the Poison thing, because it's, it's a lot of Richie Kotzen bluesy stuff going on in this. But what I love about it, is that these guys aren't in a hurry for let's get that out of the way and then get back to what we do. They're just kind of letting the song happen, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, what's fun about it. Again, like a good molten chocolate cake, you just let it happen to you. And it's, okay. <laughs> I like that analogy quite a bit. Yeah. This was one of the highlights of the, um, the concert too. They did a breakdown in the middle of the set where they did all acoustic stuff. So they did oh, wow. Home Sweet Home on acoustic guitar instead of a piano. They would uh, Love Shine on there. Just a really cool part of that set. So I just love that song. It's short, but it feels mm -hmm. good when you listen to it. And you don't feel like you're ripped off at uh, for, with a short song. It feels like it played the way it was supposed to play and it was filling at the end. Mm -hmm. Next up, we have Poison Apples. This is the one song on the album that is credited to all the members of the band and... Bob Rock. I, I would love to know what Bob Rock brought into this song because I think that's hilarious. I would say this is one of the weaker tunes on the album, but I still really like it. Like, It's got a really good hook in it, I think. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but I think it's got a really good hook that brings you in and, and makes the sound a little better than it should be. 
I don't know this for a fact, but if I had to guess, Rock's contribution was this may have been something early that they did together, and he was trying to get him to he was trying to help him with Doctor Feelgood Part Two because this feels like a song that could have been written for Doctor Feelgood. Like Vince could sing this song, it would work. It kind of sounds like yeah, that. It sounds I would like agree. old recruit off of that, and I'm kind of okay with it because especially because it comes in you know, like right in the middle of all this, <laughs> you know, like Molly Crew's done a grunge record. Now we're gonna kind of tease you with what we used to be. Just so you don't forget that we're still that band. We can still play Girls, Girls, Girls. We can still play, you know, uh, Smoking in the Boys' Room, you know, that kind of stuff. And we can we can, we can do a little lighter, you know. I feel like this is a lighter touch. If I had to guess, that's Bob's contribution is, I was trying to get one that sounds kind of like a feel-good record. And and it, it more or less does. Yeah. I like it. I actually like the departure from the, everything else around it because it's just, it's so like, oh, that's what that band used to sound like. It's very much like it, I imagine it had to be in concert watching them do old crew records and then coming in and doing new stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was it was actually kind of cool because you got to hear it sung a, di- a way different way. <laughs> and what's interesting is some, I, I've been uh, going down the rabbit hole of watching some of those old uh, concerts that are out there. There's not a whole lot because they were playing in smaller venues for this, so there wasn't as many videotapes. But there are a few out there. And it's funny when Krabi doesn't know the lyrics to a certain song or has forgotten them, he just mumbles around like Vince does. And I was like, oh, look, he does it too. <laughs> but it was, Horse sounds. <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. But I agree with you 100%. This is a song that you could see Vince Neil singing and doing well with because it does have that classic crew feel to it. I, I really love the hook on this one, the pretty, pretty poison apples. Just a really good line. And uh, yeah, I like I said, it's probably the weakest of the songs on the album only because we're getting hit so hard with everything yeah. else. And it's still good. I still like it a lot. Yeah. And then we come to Hammered, which, God, that riff is amazing, right? Holy crap. And I There's actually, that punk attitude. <laughs> yeah, I actually watched the rehearsals. The, the rehearsals for this album are out there on YouTube. You can watch some of it. Mick Mars is not very politically correct in this video at all. But I will say that I watched him sit there and jam on this riff. And it was just like, wow. Like watching his fingers go all around to get this riff, I was like, damn that's a complicated riff and it sounds really good though yeah i wrote one line for this motley crew is really pissed mtv left though because <laughs> that's what this feels like this is about and you know i i remind myself that nikki six at his core is a punk guy he mm-hmm. came out of the punk scene and it it comes through in a lot of crew songs through the years and clearly he brought this one in and and Karabi was like okay let's try to make that a thing that we can you know do uh but you've nailed the part that gets it is mixed guitar playing on this is out of his mind Mm -hmm. i mean it is so good and it's not the greatest song in the record it's not as nearly as strong as some of the early stuff but it's still really good and again it's that motley crew in their early days was a punk band and and it's kind of that shout at the devil screw you for playing jesus jones and not playing my video anymore (laughs) Uh, yeah. thing I, that's what that's, that's what's going on at the time that and like color me bad was all over mtv oh, yeah. and not these guys yeah and what i really like too about this is you really get that gritty voice from karabi in this one he just really growls go, yeah growls through this song and I, I really like that a lot can we talk about how hard that is to do by the oh, way yeah. like as a vocalist like to pull that off and make that work that is not easy and the dude is still doing it to this day you go watch videos of him playing you know back when we were playing gigs before covid and the dude still sounds that way yeah oh yeah absolutely his voice is amazing like he 
He just left the Dead Daisies, which is a hard rock band out there. Really, really good band. I highly recommend. Glenn Hughes is actually singing for them now and playing bass mm. for them. And it's abs- they just released an album. It's phenomenal. But either way, he's still got his vocals with him. He still does shows all the time. Obviously not with COVID now, but he, he does do online shows and things like that. And it's really good stuff. So I highly recommend if you really like this album or his vocals anyway, to go check him out. He's got some really great stuff out there. But let's go into track number eight, Till Death Do Us Part. Jay, this is my favorite track on this album. I absolutely love this track. This was actually going to be the name of the album. I don't know why they changed it. Right? It's perfect for it. It is. (laughs) But unfortunately, they decided not to use this as the title. But it is such a great track. And like you said, perfect. Vince Neil's gone. We got a new guy, Till Death Do Us Part. Like perfect mm-hmm. title for the album they they didn't go with it i'm not sure what the reasoning was behind that but it's just a, just a great track dark dark track yeah very, i wrote, wrote very dark weird song but it totally works and i mean that's what gets me about it i was like man it's hard to like take a take a left turn at albuquerque the way these guys have on this record and it not sound you know poser and mm-hmm. fake and there's nothing about it that does it's like all of a sudden, everybody had to realize, like, man, Molly Crew actually could be like a real band. Like, they're really good, and <laughs> they have depth to them. And it just took this guy and Bob Rock bringing it out of. I mean, it really did. I'm not again. I'm not taking a slam on Vince. It's just more of like, where was that? You know, sitting in in the back of some you know bin of stuff that Nikki had tried to write years ago. But I love the dark tone of it. I like I like the guitar interplay again. Uh, and I really think Karabi's vocals on this one, dude. I see why it's your favorite, man. He yeah. sings it to the hilt on this one. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And just, I love everything about this. Like the, the riff to start the album off, but the drumming. The drumming oh. on this is phenomenal. And it just they hit the accents in just the perfect spot. And I just, yeah, to me, this is the best track on the album. I love it. It's a Almost great perfect. pair with Misunderstood. Like, if you oh, yeah. To those two back-to-back, that's a killer duo right there. It, 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 that's cool, but that doesn't really give you the depth of what this album is, because those are the no. slower tracks, I would say, mm-hmm. the more melodic tracks on the album. Yeah, but they pair together. They do I'm pair saying. together very well. Yeah. Let's get into the next song, which is the opposite here. We go Welcome to the yeah. Numb. This is another song that I could actually see Vince Neil kind of doing. On the album, I love the riff. I love everything about this. I love the lyrics in this one. I think this is the the in-your-face, like, fuck you song. (laughs) This is it right here. Welcome to the numb. Really good stuff. This is hard-edge blues jamming right here. This is is letting Mick get the slide out, letting Krabi know, like, hey, I can hold that rhythm down for you. Mm -hmm. And and let's just really, let's just lean in and just, just play some blues and some blues rock. And it's so neat to think about this band because, again, they are a punk band. They're a metal band. But Mick, in a lot of ways, is a really good blues guitar player. And he's a great slide player. And he's all over this one. Uh, and I love the, like, you can hear the interplay between the two guys. Because Krabi's not just playing chords back there. He's playing riffs and mm-hmm. stuff. And um, it's, it's, it's good. It's hard edge blues jamming. It's the next evolution. If smoking in the boys' room in high school, this is graduate school. And it's the same kind of tune. But it's, let's have a little fun, but let's have it our way. And let's crank it to 11. And it's it's deep. And, you know, you're getting out of the kind of a sonic sound guitar 
nerdo point here, but you're getting somebody who's bringing in like Mesa Boogie and Orange Amps to go along with all that Marshall Stack stuff, <laughs> and you can just hear it. I mean, you can just hear mm-hmm. it in there. I mean, that's what Karabi plays, and it's just it's just a different sound coming at you, and it's why it mixes so well. But uh, no, jam and tune, jam and tune. Yeah, absolutely. Up next, we have Smoke the Sky. This one's funny because when they were writing this song, you can hear in the, if you listen to or want to revisit that rehearsal footage, you can see them start to build on some of these songs. And he sings a lot of different lyrics and stuff. He's freestyling some lyrics. And Smoke the Sky is what he's singing on this one, right? And they get done, and and Tommy Lee's like, oh, Smoke the Sky, that was funny. And Nikki Six goes, we are not calling that Smoke the Sky. (laughs) And we have Smoke the Sky. (laughs) So I don't know what happened there. But, uh, you know, this is another one. This is a shorter song on the album. This is, I think, the second, maybe third, second shortest song on the album. But it comes at you, and it just kind of hits you, right? It's not the best song on the album, but it's a fun song. I like the riff in this one. I call it 420 tuned a whole step down. That's what it's about, man. It's about token token up and just chilling out. And that's what these guys were talking. That's what Krabi was really interested in talking about on this. You can tell, and you can hear it in there. He's not hiding it. But it's it fits well again with Welcome to the Nom is kind of that blues jammy kind of thing again. We're we're getting into the jam songs. Um, not a great tune, but not a bad one either. Just a you know, as a filler in the midst of the second part of the record, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Like I leave it on and it just plays. Like when I was listening to it for this review, I just had it on in the background and I was like, that's kind of a jamming little tune. I kind of forgot about that one. And then it gets out. That's the thing I think it's probably best about it is it doesn't last too long. Yeah, I agree with you too. I like the tune, but it's not the one I go to if I want to listen to this mm-hmm. album. No. Dropping Like Flies track 11 is next. This one's interesting. You know, it's got some key or some signature changes, time changes in it, and it's a little slow in some parts and whatnot. And it's got, but it's got a lot of really good harmonies in it, right? Like this is one where you get a real good vocal from John Krabian, I think. Yeah, it's. I wrote it's nothing memorable, really. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a plot of a song. But it's a good vocal exercise. But it's definitely not one I would go to. I kind of see what's buried where it is on the record. It almost feels unfinished in some ways. It's like, and what's funny is that they had 20-something songs, so it obviously made the cut in some ways. But I'm (laughs) almost like, that one needed like 10 more minutes in the oven or maybe let it rest under the foil for a minute. I don't know. There's just something like missing about it. It's not bad. It's just not... Compared to the rest of the record, it is bad. It's my least favorite track on the record. Like, I, I skip it. Makes like, sense. I'm just like, mm, you know. Um, because, again, it's nothing memorable. It's kind of a plot. It's got good vocals. And that's about all I can say about it. We close the album out with our classic slow jam, Drift Away. I really like this tune. I think it's a really beautiful tune. Much better than the Forever that closed out Vince Neil's album. and or Time, Time for Change. Yep, Time for Change. Which is now, which is now in like a faucet commercial. No, yes, I know, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I actually like this song. I think it's really pretty. I like the lyrics of this song. I, yeah, to me, I think this works as a closer for this album. Because you've just hit us hard this whole album, and it's kind of nice to end it with something that's a little slowed down and a little more, ah, you know, relaxing. It's a soulful, contemplative way to close out a very interesting chapter and a very interesting story. And I like that it's the last song of the Karabi era, if you will. I'm like, man, this is all we got. You know, was that was this, and I love how this mixes kind of everything he brought to the band without the heavy stuff in one spit. You know, the the acoustics, the the soulfulness again, and just the thinking a little beyond the surface 
of you know what we could talk about and what this means. And I don't know. I, I like it. It's almost like a coda to misunderstood in some mm-hmm. ways. You can think about it. It's, it's like you, very you take similar, 20 seconds yeah. and, it, and it comes in and it's just sort of the, the coda to that song. Like a, as a big musical theater person, like this would be misunderstood the reprise. You know, you sing this on the backside. And I, I don't know. I, I love this song, though, man. I really, really do. And yeah. it's a great way to end the record. I agree. And this would be – this is almost – telling a similar story to misunderstood too right i mean that's why i think those two would work so well together because you think life's passed you by so now you're gonna slowly drift away you know just a really beautiful song and like again this is one i like at an end of the record especially one like this where it's been in your face (laughs) we're we're gonna kick your (laughs) ass all day and then we're gonna serve you some dessert so you can just chill you know and this is the dessert and i love it it's just a really good way to end this album and and so there it is guys that is motley Crue with no vince neal with a new singer with a completely new direction jay i mean this is to me oh i love this answer me answer me this how much did this sell like what are the sales figures on this record because i don't know this information it went gold in may of 1993 okay so it was released in march it was gold by May. And so you're coming off of Dr. Feelgood, which sold millions of records. And Decadive Decadence. Which and Decadive huge... Decadence, which is huge for him. Yeah, absolutely. And we get this, and it's just, it's a severe disappointment for the record label, for the band, as far as sales figures go. They all love the album. The record company absolutely loved this album. The band absolutely loves this album. But unfortunately, it's a flop in terms of sales. It's a complete flop. And so, yeah, just it's really too bad. It reached number seven on the Billboard 200 when it was released. It sold, I believe, somewhere around 175,000 copies the first week, which is huge, right? Mm -hmm. Especially considering today's days when you can sell 30,000 and be number one. Right. Well, yeah, nobody buys these days anymore. You you, you stream it. That's that's what we do. You know, the thing is about this, and and I'll go back to what I said kind of at the beginning that I think this record is respected and people do like it. The problem it has is that it's got two words on it that it probably shouldn't have on it. Yeah. Motley, Motley crew. crew. Mm-hmm. If it, if it was anything else, if they had called it anything else and, and had just advertised it as like the remaining members of Motley crew with this new person, I honestly think it would have gone over different Brian. I, I think again, the alternative scene would have latched onto this more than they did because they didn't because it said Motley Crue and they thought, eh, Dr. Feelgood, theater pain. That's not, that's not our guys. And I think Motley Crue fans would have accepted it more too, because it wasn't again, playing against that expectation. You got to understand like Van Halen to Van Hagar, there's a difference in those bands, but there's also not. Like, there's a lot of similarities. Like, Sammy can sing Dave's songs. Dave can sing some of Sammy's songs. Not as well. But, you know, they could could interswap some of that and it would work. This is not the same thing. You can't give Vince Neil these songs and say, go do that. Because it's not him. Mm -hmm. You know, you you can give Karabi the Vince tunes and you get, like, a different interpretation of it. But even that, I would say, is like, "It's, it's not. It's not, you know, crew. So I wonder if that is ultimately what damned this you know, to obscurity in a lot of ways. Um, I I think it's one of those things, though, that with 20-plus years' time, as people have gone back to it like we have tonight, you realize, like, goodness gracious, these guys really hit this out of the park, and we just didn't appreciate it at the time. 
I think you nailed it on the head there too. Now the story is that the band asked to have the name changed. They wanted to, but Electra had just signed them, like I said, to that $25 million contract. And they said, we cannot put out an album that isn't under the Motley Crue name because yeah. that's what you're signed to do. We can't just change the name of the band at this point. And so they were forced into keeping it as Motley Crue, but they originally went in and wanted to go with a whole different name. Even if it was just something like Crew, right? It wasn't Motley Crue, it was just Crew or something to go in there to show that it's a different band. And unfortunately, they were nixed on that. And I think that hurt them a lot. Would it have done good if they were a different band? It might have got a little bit of airplay on the alternative rock stations, but I don't think it would have helped them at all. You had a bunch of things working against them on this one, right? Mm -hmm. You had the album come out. It sold very well right away, and it sold very well for the first three months of the album being out. We got 500,000 copies sold. That's pretty good for three months. Yeah. And then the problem became that Elektra decided not to support it. They stopped yeah. promoing it. They didn't try to get it on MTV. They didn't try, you know, Nikki Six shot himself in the foot on MTV by walking out in the middle of an interview when he was asked about hairspray, pyro, and chicks. Right. Yeah. And he hated that question. Right. They were trying to be a more serious band. They weren't all about that anymore. Whatever. And they kept shooting themselves in the foot. Then it was the tour. The tour they started off, I believe, over in Japan. And they did pretty well in Japan. But by the time they got back here, the rug had been pulled out from underneath them and tickets weren't selling. The alternative rock had taken over the airwaves in almost every state. Nobody was playing the album. People weren't buying tickets. They had to switch it to clubs and, and theaters instead of stadiums. And, uh, you know, it just it just didn't work anymore. And unfortunately, yeah. they just got shot in the foot. So that doomed this album from selling any more. No MTV, no radio airplay. That's not a good combo for this period of time. There's just no yeah, other you, outlet. Yeah, you didn't, ha you didn't have Spotify. You didn't have you didn't an have internet Apple Music. for the most yeah, part. Yeah, you didn't have anything. You didn't have, you have Pandora. You had none of that. You know, I mean, you barely had the internet, like you say. And there was just no way to get the word out because the way to get the word out was MTV. MTV, yeah. And when you turn on those guys, see ya. Because there was nowhere else to go. VH1 was not in a place to be able to, like, stand aside of, of MTV mm -hmm. at that point and nobody cared. And I think, I think that's the biggest thing about this one that I remember is this album came out and nobody cared about it, you know, and, and I'm really, I bought the tape, I jammed to it for a couple of weeks and then it just kind of got lost in the shuffle and I hadn't thought about it in a long time until you brought it up once one of our you know conversations through the years and I broke it back out and listened to it again. I was like, man, that deserves a lot more than what it got at the time. But it's just the confluence of all that stuff, taste changing, the name recognition and kind of playing against that. And again, they shot themselves in the foot with, with the way they handled their MTV stuff. And, you know, can't bite that hand, man. No, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, too, is album has been out of print forever, but it's one of the most highly sought after albums as far as record oh, yeah. goes to get. And the, a price of, to buy this album is anywhere from $250 to $400 to get an original press. Holy cow. Now, they just put a bootleg out of it on vinyl, and that sold a ton, like a ton. 
The band will never put this out again because Vince doesn't want it out there. They they miraculously, when they redid their whole catalog, yeah. I think it was 2003 or whatever it was, they miraculously put it under the Crucial Crew reissues, which also had some bonus tracks and whatnot on there, right? That was a big deal because at the time, Vince wasn't allowing them to put out, like you don't see Generation Swine out there. They don't mm-hmm. promote that. You know, we'll talk about that too. You don't see New Tattoo, which is the album they did without Tommy Lee. And you don't see this one. They just don't release them. And it's really sad because it's part of their history. They should embrace it and they should allow fans to get that access to it. I remember when the bootleg or unofficial copy of the vinyl came out. And I'm in a bunch of record groups, right? And a ton of people ordered this thing. A ton of people <laughs> who hadn't heard it in years or ever. And they just wanted to have it to complete their Motley Crue collections. And to see them reacting to the album after the fact, I would say 90% of the people reacted in a super positive way because they don't remember the album at all, right? Other, aside from maybe Hooligans Holiday, they don't remember the album at all or never really listened to it. And then they hear it and they're like, this is a jamming album. This is an amazing album. It's not Motley Crue, but it's an amazing album. And I yeah. think that over time it got a lot of more recognition from critics from fans and everything else there are still tons of people who refuse to listen to it because it's not vince neal and that's a shame i think they should give yeah. it a shot and if you go into it thinking it's not a motley crew record fine but it's just to me it's a phenomenal album and i don't know how else to put it other than listen to it you're gonna like it it's it's it, not motley crew but it's good it's one of the most influential hard rock metal bands of the 80s putting out a really solid grunge record like it just wrap your mind around that for a minute and realize how amazing that that is and it's good and i mean that in every good way you know as somebody again who fought the grunge movement and all that stuff i've come to appreciate a lot of that and again i i say like if you like soundgarden and alice in chains particularly the early stuff that those bands did but you listen to this record because this is right in the, it's in the same vein you could play them right in a row and just be right along the, with the day um yeah i agree with you man definitely worth a revisit and glad we got to revisit it here and shine a little light on it as it is because it definitely deserves it i mean there's maybe one or two skippable like you don't need them tracks on it but the rest of it is great and totally worth your time listening yeah i would say if it were me and i was putting this together at the time and then you like we said they had something around 20 tracks or whatever that, that that they wrote for this album i would take and replace Dropping Like Flies with the Hypnotized song, which was That's the B-side to, to Misunderstood. B- the Hypnotized is an absolutely fantastic song. And I think if you would have put that on there, the album would have been perfect. Just perfect. Yeah, That's all I can say about it. And I think we all know our grades on this. For me, this is an A, a album. It's just a yeah. fantastic outing. I love it. And I don't care that it doesn't sound like traditional Motley Crue. This is just a great, great album. And I highly recommend anyone, especially if you've never listened to it or haven't listened to it in a long time, go in with fresh ears and just take a listen because I think you're going to like this quite a bit. It's a harder edge to a band you know really well, but it's such a cool edge. And it's it's a neat, like I said, it's a very neat, interesting chapter in their history. And I wish they would embrace it more because it's definitely yeah. worth your time. I agree. That's going to do it for this episode of The Death 
Resurrection and Reformation of Motley Crue. Part two is in the books. We are coming back for part three. <sighs> the re the reunion, the Reformation, Generation Swine. It's gonna be a fun one to talk about, Jay. Oh yeah. <laughs> Get my fork and knife. <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be an interesting one. There's some great stories behind this album. We will talk about them all because this was going to be the follow-up to this album with John Karabi. And there's a lot of shenanigans that went on behind the scenes that led to a very begrudgingly return of Vince Neil. And we'll talk about that in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed the first two episodes. We're looking forward to doing number three. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time for part three of the death, resurrection, and reformation of Motley Crue. <laughs>